The world of cyberpunk is renowned for its huge technological jump compared to what our real life world has done. It has embraced the life of body modifications, allowing people to do things such as send themselves into the digital world, hack into all electronic devices through a port in their hands or head, and even hack into other people's neural cortex and completely fry their systems. However, something that wasn't explored as much within the game was how much of a technological jump was also made outside of our world in the vacuum of space. For however many decades, the world of cyberpunk has seen multiple space missions that have been major successes as well as some terrible losses. And because of it, there is absolutely a future for the people of the world up out there in all of the other planets within the solar system and maybe even further out into the rest of the Milky Way galaxy. So what has been the history behind the world's space exploration? What has humanity achieved from doing this? What are some of the standout projects and where can this take us into the future? Well in today's episode we look up into the stars and explore the history behind cyberpunk space ventures. This is the lore behind all of the space explorations within the cyberpunk universe. The world of cyberpunk had just gone into the 1990s and tension was high between the US and Europe who had just sided with the Soviet Union to save them from their ultimate collapse. With tensions so high across the world the two started to try and get the upper hand on each other, be that through economic power, weaponry and even technology. Within the year of 1991 Europe were going to set up their latest project, bringing together the Eurospace Agency or ESA. Their first mission after their setup was to create a device known as the mass driver on Mount Kilimanjaro, with the help from their allies known as the Pan-African Alliance. The mass driver sounds extremely complex, but to put it simply, it is essentially what is seen within Mass Effect. It is a huge catapult capable of throwing materials and vessels up into space to help the ESA start building colonies on the moon and other planets. It was a huge project. However, if it was to work, it would be groundbreaking in space exploration and would allow mankind to to start building out within the vacuum of space. Six years after this project was set up, the ESA had done it. The mass driver was fully created and now they could send vital resources up into the stars, with their first goal being to colonize the place humanity had first stepped foot on in their space missions back in the day, the moon. With tons and tons of things like small bases, drilling equipment and other resources being catapulted into space, eventually the scientists at the ESA and the Pan-African Alliance were successful in setting up the first ever lunar colony that would be named Taicho. With all of these things up there on the moon's surface now, full bases would be constructed and the latest and greatest equipment the world had ever seen would be housed there. This colony was outstanding as it was able to bring in a new viable ecosystem that started to blossom, all thanks to how the colonists started utilizing their equipment. Ice would be mined beneath the surface of the moon, allowing them to extract the perfect amount of water, but also also air needed to not only help the colony of people survive, but to also keep that precious ecosystem thriving, feeding all those that were now housed there. But not only that, the colonists here would also go on to create another mass driver called the Taicho Mass Driver that they would utilize to send things back to Earth or to expand out even further into the wider depths of space. The Taicho colony was just the start of their travels and its whole creation was something to be marveled at, unless you were from the US 
in which you would be fuming at as Europe had now overtaken them in terms of space exploration and technology. But with that said, as the world was getting worse in terms of climate change and economic struggles, many saw this lunar colony as a sign of a new world, a chance to start again and escape the planet that humanity was quickly destroying thanks to their greed and hatred towards one another. The ESA didn't stop there with the Taicho colony, and in fact to celebrate the turn of the millennium, they would go on to plan their next creation. This was to be a beautiful space station that was to be open to anyone who wanted to visit it. A place that housed the latest, greatest entertainment stars, a huge casino, luxury apartments and restaurants, and everything you could want all housed in one place looming over the beautiful sun-illuminated Earth. This space station would go on to be named as the Crystal Palace, and its construction would start to take place in the heart of 2000, utilizing the Taicho mass driver to send them all of the vital resources to help it to be made into something truly special. And this station was absolutely going to be special, as it cost the ESA over 7 billion euro dollars to create, something that piqued everyone's interest and once again was another insult to injury for the US, who were massively falling behind at this point in the timeline. But sadly, as the year of 2005 came around, construction of the incredible space station was delayed massively, all thanks to the kickoff of the first corporate war between the corporations of Euro Business Machines, Orbital Air, and Zeta Tech, who caused massive disruptions in all space travel, making it almost impossible for the ESA to get vital resources they needed. Luckily, the corporate war came to an end within 2006, meaning the construction of the Crystal Palace was able to continue, albeit still massively delayed due to a lack of resources from Earth. Regardless, construction was able to continue, but not for long, as within the year of 2008, the US once again got an itchy trigger finger and looked at hitting back against Europe and the ESA. At this point in the timeline, the ESA had signed an agreement with the still-functioning European-funded Soviet Union, which did not sit well with America at all. On top of that, thanks to the huge financial crash in the late 90s and early 2000s, America had been stripped of all of its vital resources around the planet, but also within space, such as the NASA Galileo Space Station, which was fully abandoned within 2004 and saw the almost end to NASA as a whole. In retaliation to everything that had been going on, the United States Aerospace Force started building the most powerful space force in Earth's near orbit. This did not sit well with the ESA and Neo-Soviet Union, who were also developing a space armament plan themselves, with both of these factions now littering the whole of orbit with killer satellites, concealed drones, work habitats, and massive battle stations which served as orbital fortresses and bases. People thought space was a way to get out of the conflicts happening on Earth as well as all of its other problems, but by 2008 the Earth's orbit was absolutely filled with war machines ready to take out anyone that threatened them, something that seemed far more terrifying than anything they had ever experienced before. This all came to a head in the same year when space patrols started to invade each other's orbital nests, taking their hardware for themselves. For a time this happened on both sides with the Neo-Soviets sending in their concealed drones and the US doing exactly the same. The ESA on the other hand would stay clear of these operations despite it being technically legal according to the US space salvage laws of 1995, which stated that any unidentified object in orbit constituted a danger to orbital navigation and could be removed and salvaged by any responsible party. The reason they stayed away however was because they knew most of the salvage was booby trapped and far too dangerous to grab when 
up close. This continued for a while with many incidents of damage and injury which actually led to both parties coming together at one point to exchange data about different areas. But that all changed when the US unexpectedly launched an attack on the Neosov's biggest battle station within orbit, named the Mir-13. Getting close to it, the USAF boarded it successfully with their EVAT Marines in what was said to be the only spacesuit invasion in the history of mankind. In retaliation, the ESA responded and came to the defense of their Soviet allies, sending in their own troops in their own space combat suits. As they arrived, a very short but brutal war took place with many casualties and lots of property damage. After just six hours of this bloody yet different war, the ESA knew they had to come up with a plan to really hit America hard and utilize their lunar mass driver, loading it up with a two-ton rock and using it to bomb Colorado Springs, absolutely devastating that area and everyone within it, including the USA's military leaders housed there. At that same time, over 40% of the world's Earth-to-orbit platforms and vehicles would go on to be destroyed thanks to the escalating war. But luckily for the ESA, the Crystal Palace would be too far away for it to be affected by the ongoing conflict. Eventually, with all of that property being destroyed and many deaths as well, the war came to an abrupt end after just six hours, helping it become known as the First Orbit War or the Six Hour War. Despite it being just six hours long, this war was one of the most expensive ever experienced, costing around 2.98 billion euro dollars per hour in destruction. With the US leadership in shambles now at Colorado Springs, one individual would rise to power because of it and would take charge within the USFA, that being the soon-to-be president of the US, Elizabeth Cress. With the war now over, it would seem like there would be a time of peace throughout Earth orbit, but that was to once again change that next year in 2009, where out of nowhere, a US-backed terrorist group tried desperately to take the Crystal Palace for themselves to make sure they gained all access to the resources going into it, and also gained full ownership for when it opened to the public, maybe converting it from an entertainment station into a massive military base. Regardless of what their plans were for this invasion, it was a colossal failure, as the ESA would go on to discover that it was the American Defense Intelligence Agency who plotted it all. And with that knowledge, the ESA threatened to absolutely devastate their capital of Washington DC with a five-ton rock, dropping it into a nearby coast as a warning shot. It became clear to the US that this was not a very bright idea to meddle with the Crystal Palace and the ESA for that matter, and with that pulled back any future attempts at invading their property. With them out of the picture now, construction finally continued and eventually in the year of 2011, the Crystal Palace was completed and yet again it was another victory for the ESA who were light years ahead of the US and the rest of the world in terms of space technology at this point in time. With its doors officially open, the ESA had now a secure hold within high Earth orbit and were bringing in thousands of paying clients excited to see Earth from a new perspective, whilst also enjoying the top entertainment the Earth had to offer them. But soon after the Crystal Palace was created, the ESA did not want to stop there in their space exploration as they had already started a new venture to get to Mars and hopefully colonize it before anyone else. This mission was a success for the ESA, mainly thanks to the help of the USSR 
However, for unexplained reasons, both the ESA and the USSR abandoned the planet quickly after arriving. It is unexplained as to why they left the Red Planet after all of that work, but maybe it was too much of a task to create a colony on it, as they would have needed far more advanced equipment to terraform the planet into something fully livable. Throughout the 2010s, not much happened out within space. The ESA were far too powerful to really shift, and because of that, they controlled everything within low and high orbits. NASA by this point was still a remnant of what it was prior to 2004. That said, other nations were desperately trying to enter this space race to challenge the ESA and make them feel the heat of competition. This was mainly seen through the Japanese Aerospace Bureau, who would also try to create an alliance with the Neo-USSR to relieve some of the tension caused by the the ESA's utter domination of space. This did allow Japan to stand out as a true competitor to the ESA as their technology took a sudden jump up in quality. But despite that, the ESA still continued to control the stars. This continued on even further when the ESA came together with multiple corporations who wanted to expand their businesses even further, taking them outside of the Earth atmosphere and to help fund future orbital manufacturing projects. These companies consisted of Arasaka, IEC, Kiroshi and Kendachi, who were all given orbital stations by the ESA as a thanks for their loyalty as well as their funds helping the ESA to gain even more power within space. As the 2000s came around, rumors started spreading all over the world and in the orbit about a legendary group coming out of the Crystal Palace. These individuals were said to be hired by the palace itself to do their dirty work for them within space and down on Earth. Named as the Angels, this group of at least 12 individuals was said to be elite martial artists who were considered to be the best solos ever and if you actually got a glimpse of them it would only be for a moment before they took you out on request of the palace. The reason why they would be called angels would be because they would fall from the palace itself to take out their targets and then return when the job was done. That name might have also been because no one really knew if they existed or not. Not many people claimed they had seen them and those who had usually were on the end of their attack. No records seem to exist, or at least no one has ever found anything about them, but they are spoken about by many prominent solos down on Earth. However, these solos who do speak about the angels actually do not fully believe in them, stating they are just tales and shouldn't be taken seriously. The idea of the angels actually existing certainly seems like something plausible, especially when the Crystal Palace is such a phenomenal place, and if anyone was to plot against its owners or try and scam them, they would need a fierce security to take take out those targets, and what better way to do it than people who plunge down into the earth to take out their targets and then venture back up into the orbit to never be seen ever again. The angels weren't the only ones who lived up in orbit, not really known to those down on Earth. Thanks to how long humanity had been up in space by this point, a new form of human was coming out of it that was named as the High Riders. These humans were essentially people who were either born up in space or had spent most of their lives living there, not really knowing what it was like to live in an atmosphere like on Earth. These individuals are all incredibly intelligent as most of them are well-educated scientists and technicians, or at least they're 
their parents were anyway. But not only that, they are also extremely fast reacting and very level headed, making it difficult for them to ever really get angry. But if you did make them angry, you know you have really messed up then. Thanks to the ESA's project back in 1991 setting up the mass driver on Mount Kilimanjaro, most of these high riders are of African descent because of the fact that many who made this mass driver were from the Pan-African Alliance. That said, these individuals are completely multilingual and can grasp the structure and feature of many different languages even if they have never heard them before, allowing them to learn them over time with relative ease, but also using all of these different languages to form their own language that the high riders speak, which is known as the word. Upon hearing this language, it is essentially an orbital version of street slang, made up mostly of various African dialects, but also containing components of French, German and Japanese. The one weakness of the high riders is their overall strength. Due to them being in zero G pretty much all of their lives, they have no ability to really train in full gravity like that of their Earth living counterparts. But with that said, their stamina and determination is far higher. And if in a battle with their surface dwelling humans, they would most likely win as they would never want to fail. Back down on Earth within the US, their funds were going back to a form of normality. And because of it, NASA started to emerge once again, looking at how they could expand their space exploration. Here they were going to develop the NASA Deep Space Capable Explorer class manned vehicle, which would suddenly allow them to venture out further into the Sol system and challenge the ESA in their space journey. With this new technology, NASA ventured out to try and colonize Mars with the help from its technological partner, JAB, aka Japanese Aerospace Bureau. This mission was named the Columbus Mars Mission as they all successfully ventured out to Mars. When doing that, they would be able to not only get there, but fully colonize the planet, something that the ESA was never able to do, putting them suddenly in the lead of planetary colonization. Landing 63 people on this first venture, Mars was now housed with sufficient advanced equipment in which they used to construct a small permanent base called the Cryspace. The ESA and Sovoil quickly followed suit after the news of NASA's successful mission and took to building their own base on Mars, naming it Isidus Base, which would go on to bring both of the colonies together as one unified Martian colonial government. With such a great comeback mission, NASA continued on launching multiple space missions to try and really compete against the ESA for space control, but more importantly use Mars as a headquarters to launch more expedition missions to expand humanity's outreach into the Sol system. Back within the High Rider community, they would be relatively quiet during this time, getting on with their own unique civilization on their space stations and doing the tasks they set out to do. However, down on the surface, the fourth corporate war had now kicked off and the people were witnessing destruction never really seen before. After multiple cities such as Rio de Janeiro, which was reduced to rubble, it seemed almost inevitable that the war would spread up into the Earth orbit, utilizing some of the weapons still being housed there. This became a reality in September 2022, when a Killsat artillery strike fired at the orbital habitant in the Crystal Palace, which was said to be by accident. Seeing the projectiles heading towards the space station, three high riders immediately jumped to the defense, sacrificing themselves to make sure no harm came to the palace. Without these brave, quick-thinking high riders, the station would have most likely been destroyed, if not majorly damaged, killing many in their wake and forcing the ESA to get involved in this horrific, brutal war. In response to this accidental attack, the ESA would go on to send Delta jets towards the Crystal Palace to get rid of anything suspicious within the area, destroying some orbital facilities that were lingering around the palace. For a while, this was the only attack 
attack that happened up in space. However, many living up there were living in complete fear that soon Arasaka and Militech would take the war up into orbit, especially when Arasaka owned orbital stations thanks to their links to the ESA back in the day. Things were all to change dramatically at this time within one significant orbital space station known as the O'Neill 2, which was currently under construction. Within this space station was a massive community of high riders who were working like mad to get this place fully working after originally working on the O'Neill 1. These high riders were recruited through hard marketing from the ESA with such phrases as we all open the door to the universe and the solar system a home for all, really selling to them that these places will be paradises for everyone. With that said however as soon as the high riders started entering the station to start its construction all of their freedoms were completely stripped by the ESA as they were forced to work excessively long hours under horrific and dangerous conditions given no time to rest at all. To ensure these workers carried on doing their duties and not taking unapproved breaks, the ESA would employ security to rule with an iron fist to guarantee that the construction went ahead quickly. The high riders did not enjoy their time here obviously, however many carried on not wanting to break into violence. Some peaceful protests took place over how bad the working conditions were, but every time these protests came about, the ESA hit back with intense violence with the intention of trying to break their spirits and force them back to work. Eventually however on the 29th of September 2022 the high rider community snapped not wanting to take this treatment anymore as well as a fear that they would be caught up in the collateral damage from the ever-growing fourth corporate war. With no other options the high riders knew it was time to overthrow their superiors utilizing their numbers. With this plan the high riders staged an effective coup of the entire station eventually taking complete control. This coup was so effective because the high riders knew the ins and outs of the entire station, where the resources were and how long it took for reinforcements to get there and with all of that knowledge they would just simply overwhelm the security forces hard and fast, which was easily doable as they outnumbered them 40 to 1. As the coup took place there was not enough guns for the security forces to take all of the high riders out and because of it the high riders were able to take over complete control with relative ease. Now in control after just a couple of hours, the High Riders started deploying all the artillery capabilities of the O'Neill 2 station, attacking any station that was owned by the ESA and the European Economic Community. As these bombing attacks went ahead, a huge number of key facilities began to fall, as well as a vast number of tactical defensive destruction of a number of corporate-owned orbital weapons. After just seven hours, this small war had come to an end, and these incredibly brave High Riders had destroyed all of the ESA's stations apart from one, the Crystal Palace. Not only had the ESA lost their bases, but they had also lost a number of their powerful mass drivers. With all of the vital things taken out, the High Riders stopped the attack and declared full independence, along with many other low Earth orbit colonies who wanted their own freedom away from the ESA and the corporations who had left them open and exposed to the horrific Fourth Corporate War happening just below them. A new era of humanity was taking place as the stations all within Earth's orbit were becoming fully independent away from the control of the ESA and the corporations and were allowed to live however they wished. With the high riders forming into a new confederation, the governments of both Japan and the US, who had very close links to Arasaka and Militech, both wanted to garner the support of these new independent stations and with that quickly recognized them as the legitimacy of the new high rider confederate government. In the end, the big losers in all of this was the ESA, who were forced to cede control of Earth's space, with the Confederation taking full control of the 
former ESA cities of Tycho and Copernicus based on the moon. For a time, humanity's space ventures were put on hold. Not much really happened up there as the High Riders continued to just get on with their own business. NASA did go on to send up a new ship housing a crew of Pathfinders who were sent out to the planet of Jupiter to explore its moons. This mission was meant to arrive at the planet by 2025. However, after the Fourth Corporate War, their signal had been lost thanks to the destruction of Cape Canaveral in 2023. Now that the war had ended, Militech now under the rule of the US government tried to track down the signal, expecting it to come back online to find that they had made it to Jupiter. However, this was not so. By 2026, that signal was still not heard and many were worried about what had happened on their mission and if they were still out there. And even by the year of 2077, Militech and the US government are still desperately trying to locate their signal. Although by this point, it's pretty safe to say that the Pathfinders are probably long gone or they are completely stranded on the hostile planet. Over at the Crystal Palace at the same time, the ESA would still be in full control of the station and luckily for them, it had become the most famous space station orbiting the Earth as well as the most expansive as well. Now being quite isolated away from all of the other stations, the palace would go on to offer all paying customers a great variety of services, including a number of recreational facilities like casinos, hotels and restaurants, and music acts on grand stages. This helped the station gain the title of the Las Vegas of space. And because of how amazing this place was, as of 2077, anyone who is of importance in Earth's orbit, as well as the wealthiest corporations, all have leased space within this grand crystal palace. It is unsure what the future of humanity's space exploration plans are. After the fourth corporate war, many stations and ground facilities have been outright destroyed or overruled, meaning that those who had grand ambitions have lost a lot of ground and would take decades to recuperate their losses and build it all back up once again. For the corporations of Arasaka, they continue to house stations up within orbit that they use for a variety of reasons, such as medical experiments or military bases, and the other stations within orbit house the proud high rider communities who have their own unique societies that are pretty different to anything else. And if you were to go to them as a surface dweller, you might feel completely overwhelmed there. Over on the moon, most of the bases there are utilized for mining operations being owned by the high riders once again, as well as NASA. But with that said, they also house tourist parks to show off the beautiful view of Earth and allow you to experience what it is like to live on the moon. Over on Mars, things are relatively the same. This planet is mainly used for corporations to mine for resources and conduct research on. That said, their colonies are gaining more and more people by the day and are expanding out into more of the planets. The moons there are also being utilized for communication outposts, making it clear that Mars is really becoming a prospering planet to live on. As for Jupiter, no one really knows what is going on there, and maybe the Pathfinders did arrive there unharmed, but maybe that'll be a story for another day. For now, this is where humanity is when it comes to space exploration. It's had its highs and its lows, but despite everything it has gone through, colonies and space stations continue to live on, and hopefully we will get a glimpse of what they have to offer in the near future. But with all of that, that brings our journey into the stars to an end. This has been the history of space exploration from the cyberpunk universe.